Welcome to the 187th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Nothing we ever do in agriculture has a single effect. It has compounding, cascading effects. That quote is from a presentation Alan Williams gave at a recent Winter Land Stewardship Project meeting in West Central Minnesota. Williams, a grazing expert, researcher, and columnist, kicked off a day-long discussion about how farmers can utilize cover crops and rotational grazing to build soil as well as their bottom lines, seeding, fencing, watering systems, cost-benefit calculations, and ways of managing livestock movement were all addressed during the workshop, which, besides LSP, was sponsored by the Pasture Project, Practical Farmers of Iowa, and the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota. Williams has a deep academic background in livestock production, but he also raises grass-fed cattle himself. He has consulted on farms and ranches in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and South America, and currently serves on the board of the Grass-Fed Exchange and the Mississippi Sustainable Agriculture Network. He's also a team member of the Pasture Project, a Wallace Center at Winrock International Initiative that works in the upper Midwest to increase the number of acres of farmland that are sustainably managed utilizing methods such as managed rotational grazing of livestock. LSP is a partner organization of the Pasture Project. During his talk, which is excerpted here, Williams described the ecological as well as economic reasons why building healthy soil on our farms and ranches is more important than ever. He also explained the impacts of the compounding, cascading effect agriculture has on our land as well as our communities. Now, in agriculture, I think we all understand that we are facing some problems today. And we're going to spend a lot of time today, both this morning and this afternoon, talking about those and, and talking about ways that we can address those problems and deal with them. But, and that's certainly one of the things that we're working on rather strongly with the Pastor Project and our various partners. And so this is one of the things that we're experiencing. This is a satellite image of a massive dust storm out on the western Kansas plains, eastern Colorado plains. And this was January. We shouldn't be having these dust storms at all, much less in winter. But this was in January of 2013. And this is what that same dust storm looked like from ground level. And then again, we see in 2014 this massive dust storm out in Colorado. And it looks eerie similar to that photo from the, from the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. So this is something that, that we are experiencing more and more often. And when you go back and look at the timeline, this is what is really sort of scary to me, is that in the 1930s Dust Bowl, when you think about the timeline from when the, the settlers and the homesteaders first started pushing across the Great Plains after the Civil War, and in earnest, it really started happening in the 1870s and 1880s, and putting the plow to the prairie. And we find that within a period of about 60 years, it only took about 60 years after critical mass settlement out there before we experienced the first and note I said the first, dust bowl. Then we had about 20 to 30 years of serious conservation efforts in the U.S. following that dust bowl. But then after that period, we seemed to get lax again. And here we are 
about another 60 years removed from that 20 to 30 years of serious conservation efforts. And over the last three to four years, we have again been experiencing a number of massive dust storms each year out on the Great Plains and further west. This is another issue. We're dealing a lot with, it, with this within the pasture project, but the hypoxia issue or the dead zone issue in the Gulf of Mexico every year. And as I said, I reside in Mississippi, and I can tell you that this is a major economic issue in the Gulf South. For states like Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and the Gulf Coast of Texas, this cost the economies down there billions of dollars a year. And this dead zone every year can range anywhere from 4,000 to over 10,000 square miles as it engulfs that portion of the Gulf of Mexico. So this is, and obviously this is heavily related to runoff coming down the Mississippi River drainage basin. This is another issue that we're facing is the rapid conversion of cropland across the Midwest and the upper Midwest to the tune that over the last six plus years, we have seen more than 8.5 million acres of former grassland converted into row crop ground. And, and one of the main problems with this is that the majority of this land that has been converted really was not suited for row crop production to begin with and never should have been converted. It's highly erodible land and should have stayed in grass. Now we also have a conundrum. On the exact same day, about a month ago, these articles came out. It was a Sunday. We had an article in the USA Today and then another one in the Houston Chronicle. The one in the USA Today was talking about the Monsanto-Bayer merger and they were interviewing farmers throughout the Midwest and their impression and their thoughts on that merger. And the first thing they said was, well, we fear further price control issues and all of this with further, you know, monopolization and, and all of that within this sector. But then they turned right around, those same farmers, and said, yeah, we're hopeful that through this merger, new chemicals and new GM crops will emerge that will increase our yields. Now, remember, on the exact same day, this article in the Houston Chronicle came out, and they were interviewing farmers as well, and the title of that article is Bumper Yields Plow Farmers Under. So there's our conundrum. Do higher yields mean that we make more money? I don't think so. And then the week right before Thanksgiving, I did a, uh, an eight-workshop tour through the state of Nebraska, and this article came out that week while I was in Nebraska called More Crop, Less Cash. And in that article, they were detailing farm economics were deteriorating, land values falling, loan defaults rising. But yet, in 2016, as farmers, we again produced record corn and bean crops. But farm income was down 42% since 2013. Now, let me ask you this question. Do all of you remember when we were seeing the rapid increase in corn and bean prices? You know, when corn was seven to eight dollars a bushel, beans were bumping fifteen dollars and all of that. What was being written? And 
the vast majority of the ag publications, you remember? We were never going to see corn below $5 a bushel again. You remember reading that? And corn's going to reach maybe even $10, right? We saw all of that. And beans, maybe $20. So the picture was incredibly rosy. But yet, the exact year that all of those articles were being written, and they were being written prior to planting of the crop that year, that same year, Jim, what did we see? We saw corn fall back down to $3, okay, and take a hit, and we've been there since. Now, how did the ag economic pundits here in the U.S. get that so wrong? How did they get it so wrong so quickly? Well, here's why. They failed to account for this, that the rest of the world was watching, and we're not the only people in the world, folks, that have farms. The rest of the world does too. And the rest of the world produce crops and cattle and other proteins. And so they were watching this. And so the rest of the world in response to the high prices that we were seeing over here ramped up their production. So we failed to account for what the rest of the world could do agriculturally in the face of what we were doing agriculturally. And we cannot afford to do that anymore. We have to take that into account. Now, in the same article, they were talking about farmland values expected to fall by 20% by 2018. Loans not being paid back as agreed has more than doubled. The grain and feedlot industries have been the hardest hit. And do you know that in 2015, the U.S. feedlot industry lost $4.7 billion as an industry? And they went on to say farm debt will be five times larger than net income, and net farm income will slip to a seven-year low. So none of this sounds very good, does it? It actually sounds pretty depressing. But yet that's reality of where most farmers and ranchers in the U.S. are today. But we're going to spend the rest of the time today talking about what we can do okay, to alleviate this situation. There are a lot of people out there. There's some excellent examples, and I'm going to give you some case studies today. And we have people in this room that have done things a lot better. We do have hope, and that hope is real. We have a way to be able to significantly improve our farm incomes, our true profitability and sustainability, and even regenerate our soils. George Monboy in an article written March 25, 2015, had this quote. He said, we're treating soil like dirt. It's a fatal mistake as our lives depend on it. War, pestilence, even climate change are trifles by comparison. Destroy the soil and we all starve. And that was in 2015. But yet, this quote by a Jewish philosopher out of the Sanskrit text in 1500 BC is quite similar. Upon this handful of soil our survival depends. Husband it, and it will grow our food, our fuel, our shelter, and surround us with beauty. Abuse it, and the soil will collapse and die, taking humanity with it. Now according to the United Nations FAO, Global soil destruction is now so intense 
that it's estimated we only have about 60 to 100 years left of adequate crop production before severe famine unless we start doing something about it now. They also estimate that we need about 15 million acres of new cropland annually to support the growing population and keep up with global food demand, but at the same time we're losing the equivalent of 30 million acres of topsoil annually through soil degradation. So the techniques that over the last several decades we thought were supposed to feed the world are actually now threatening us with future starvation and famine. And they, one of the things that they looked at, and, and I've got the citation here, and, and I've got an article coming out uh, that's going to be out in Gray's here shortly about this as well, but one of the things that they looked at was an analysis of an un undisturbed settlements Sediments in an 11th century French lake reveals that the intensification of farming over the past century has increased the rate of soil erosion 60-fold. Now another paper by UK researchers found that soil in urban allotments, and Warren, you know, Will Allen and a lot of others, Jim Slob and them are doing a lot of this here in the US today, but soil in urban allotments, small patches in towns and cities that's being basically hand cultivated and farmed actually contains a third more organic carbon in agricultural soil and 25% more nitrogen than our average farmland soils. And this is one of the reasons that those average urban and suburban plots and even rooftop gardens Folks, they're outdoing us, okay? They're producing four to 11 times more food per acre than we are. Four to 11 times. These urban farmers doing this by hand. And they're even adding a lot of protein products to that production. So, let's talk about what some of our solutions are. You know, everything's gotta start with the foundation. The foundation of this building was critical to it being here today and being sound and solid and standing against all of the things that weather and the environment can throw against it. Well, the soil is our foundation and it's critical to what we can do. This is a soil food web from Dr. Elaine Ingham, but it just simply illustrates that if we're going to have thriving life above the soil, we've got to have thriving life below the soil. So when we put a shovel to the soil, we should see much more life or evidence of life beneath that soil surface than we're seeing above it. 90% of soil function is mediated by microbes, yet those same microbes are highly dependent on plants for their existence and their functioning. So how we manage plants on our farms and ranches is critically important to the ability of microbes to function in those soils. And plant growth and health is highly correlated with how much life and the kind of life that we have in that soil. So bottom line is microbes matter, and more importantly, that microbial community structure is very critical. So this is what an acre of healthy soil should look like. Yeah, if we look over in the far column here the, you know, on the right hand side we'll see that we should have more than a ton of bacteria, more than a ton of fungi, more than a thousand pounds 
of actinobacteria, more than 130 pounds of the predators of the soil, which are the protozoa and the favorable nematodes, more than 400 pounds of earthworms, and more than 800 pounds of soil-level insects. That's what an acre of healthy soil should look like. When we have that, we can build soil organic matter very rapidly. And as a matter of fact, there's a very recent paper out by the University of New Hampshire that shows that microbes themselves have the power to build new soil organic matter. So they are critical to being able to regenerate our soils. A handful of healthy soil contains more microorganisms than all the people who have ever existed on the face of the earth. A handful. A handful. And then again, another quote by George Monbiot, soil is an almost magical substance, a living system that transforms the materials it encounters, making them available to plants. So what do these microbes do? First of all, if we talk about mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, they perform a number of critical roles. Number one, they produce a soil glue. Now the reason for them producing this sticky substance or this glue is for them to attach themselves to the roots of plants. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a second. But we get a side benefit, an indirect benefit from that, and that is that that same glue that they use to attach themselves to the roots of plants also aggregates soil. And we want that desperately. Now another function that mycorrhizal fungi do, and they're long thread-like or filamentous organisms. Okay? They attach themselves to the roots of the plants and the soil and greatly extend the reach of those roots. So they can reach and pick up nutrients that the plant roots themselves cannot. And they are so good at this. As a matter of fact, they are six to ten times better at extracting nutrients and micronutrients out of the soil than plant roots are. They're so good at it that mycorrhizal fungi can even extract mineral out of rock and feed that, those minerals to the plant roots. So they feed these minerals to the plant roots, and the roots in return produce root sugars or exudates that feed the mycorrhizal fungi. So it's the world's oldest bartering system. They also connect roots from many different plants, and we're going to talk about why that's critical here in just a moment. But one of the things that that can do is it can transfer nitrogen and other nutrients from lagoon-producing plants to non- or, or lagoon plants to non-lagoon plants. So a single gram of soil in healthy, thriving soil should contain between 10 and 50,000 microbial species, and their nutrient cycling services are worth up to $20 trillion annually. Now, if the mycorrhizal fungi was not present, in that soil, and in many of our farm soils today, that is exactly the case. As a matter of fact, in too many of our pastures as well. But if this mycorrhizal fungi is not present, this plant can only absorb nutrients that are in contact with the root itself. But you can see how the mycorrhizal fungi tremendously extends the reach of that plant root itself 
it increases its ability to be able to attract and absorb nutrients. And again, this just depicts that the mycorrhizal fungi also form this very extensive mat up underneath the ground and connect plants of many different species. Protozoa. Protozoa are the predators of the soil. How many of you have too many deer? I do too. In Mississippi, we've got more deer than we have people. You know, how do we control deer? Predators and hunters. Hunters are predators. How do we control the bacteria of the soil? The predators of the soil, the protozoa. So their job is to keep the prey of the soil or the bacteria in the soil in check. Now, what's one of the primary functions of soil bacteria? It is to consume nutrients as they are pushed down through the root zone by rainfall or irrigation water and to hold them in that root zone because if they did not do that, many of those nutrients would leach further down into the soil out of the reach of the plant roots and therefore out of the reach of any efficient utilization. So the bacteria consume those nutrients, hold them in the root zone, but yet they're not a time release mechanism. So once they have captured those nutrients, those nutrients are now bound within the membrane of the soil bacteria. So how are those nutrients released? By the bacteria being consumed by protozoa. So that's our time release mechanism. That's why protozoa are so critical to us. Nematodes work much the same way. There's far more favorable nematodes than there are unfavorable nematodes. And in agriculture, we tend to think all nematodes are bad. Now, all of those organisms are microscopic and we cannot see those. But there are things that we can see visibly to the naked eye that, that are indicator species that allow us to be able to determine the degree of soil health if what we're doing is effective. So what are some of the indicator species? Well, soil level insects. Remember the chart I showed earlier that said when we have healthy soil, we should have more than 800 pounds of insects per acre. And when you think about those insects reproducing and dying and reproducing and dying, their bodies, their exoskeletons and all of that themselves become new organic matter, don't they? So if we have that level of soil insects, it produces tremendous results. But what is one of the most critical things these soil-level insects do for us? Well, all of that ground litter down there, all of that dead plant material, they, they shred it up and they start the degradation process. So then soil bacteria and other organisms, the saprophytic fungi and all that can act on that. And if we're going to have a lot of soil-level insects, then we're going to have predators for those insects, and that means spiders. So when we have healthy soils, either in our row crop fields or in our pastures, we should be seeing lots and lots of spiders. And in an early morning, you should be able to look out across your fields and in the dew, see all of these spider webs shimmering in the fields. Earthworms, we can see earthworms. If we have healthy soil, we should be seeing a lot of earthworms and evidence of earthworms castings of all the soil surface and that type of thing. Dung beetles. We should also be the, seeing the return of dung beetles. And it's amazing what these creatures can do for us. 
There's three main types. There's tunnelers or drillers. They're also called drillers. Dwellers and then rollers or tumblers. The rollers or tumblers are the big dung beetles that will form those balls of dung and roll them along the ground into the burrow. How many people have seen the, the rollers and tumblers? Okay, a handful of you. We should also be seeing the return of pollinator insects and these types of things. And so healthy soil is going to give us all these types of critters that are going to do a whole lot of good things for us. Another thing that we want to look for in healthy soil is aggregated soil. We have collected salt, hundreds of thousands of soil samples all over North America and down in New Mexico over the past 10 years or so and stuck a lot of shovels into soil. And one of the things that is most disturbing to me is that all across North America, even in our supposed heartland states like Iowa and eastern Nebraska and Illinois and Indiana and so forth, we are seeing soil aggregate layers of less than one inch. Less than one inch. That's incredibly disturbing. And I'm going to show you why in just a second. But it has a lot to do with why we experience more severe drought and more severe flooding issues now with our farming practices. So this is a microscopic image, a slice of aggregated soil, and you can see how with the glue produced by the mycorrhizal fungi, they've glued all these soil particles together, and it leaves all of these gaps or spaces or pores in the soil where both oxygen and water can get into the soil. And your plants and your microbes need that oxygen and water that they can't get anywhere nearly as well when we have tight, compacted, non-aggregated soil. So this is what healthy soil should look like. When we stick a shovel in the soil, it should have that cottage cheese appearance to it. So you should see soil that looks like it has a lot of curds. You should be seeing earthworms. And the deeper that aggregate layer goes, the better off you are. Do you know that since the 1960s, when we talk about soil and what we need to do in terms of soil fertility and applying fertility to our soils and that type of thing, we've only been taking into account about 20% of what we really need to know since the 1960s. So for decades, we've only considered 20% of what we really need to know. Because we've only been looking at soil chemistry or soil fertility, and we've been wholly ignoring soil physical characteristics and soil biology over that time period. And to further compound that over the last several decades, we have only considered the top six to eight inches of soil, right? When you do a core sample or when you're a crop consultant, take samples, and nowadays it's mostly crop consultants that are doing that for you, right? You know, when somebody takes soil samples on your farm, how deep are they taking those cores? Six to eight inches. So think about the ramifications of this, that over the last, over the last 50, 60 years, we have based everything we know about soil 
and all the decisions that we have made as farmers and ranchers about what we're to do on the top six inches of soil? Really? Folks, we've been painting a terribly incomplete picture of what's going on. So I'm going to ask you this question, can we control runoff with organic matter? Well, if our soils are only 2% organic matter, then they can only hold 21% of a moderate to heavy rainfall. That means that whenever you get a rain, you can only hold about two tenths and the rest of it runs off. And when we see soil aggregate layers of an inch or less, and again, we're seeing that more and more frequently across the U.S., that means that every time you get a rain, an inch is not an inch. Your soils are only holding two-tenths or less of that inch of rainfall, and the rest is ponding and pooling and running off. If we can build a 5% active organic matter, they can then hold 53% of a moderate to heavy rainfall, and at 8%, our soils can hold 85% of a moderate to heavy rainfall. And NRCS data says that for every 1% increase in organic matter, our soils can hold an additional 25,000 gall gallons of water per acre. Now, we employ adaptive grazing as one of our tools, along with cover crop livestock integration, to help us to be able to significantly improve the functioning of our soils to rebuild lost soil organic matter, to rebuild that soil aggregate layer and to recharge our soils and their function. Now, adaptive grazing is a goal-oriented type of system, wholly dependent on stock density or pounds of livestock per acre and not stocking rate. Management and flexibility are key to this being successful along with frequent movement from paddock to paddock and frequent rest. It's highly reliant on allowing full root system recovery in our plants and on temporary fencing technology. And luckily today we have, and, and Kent's going to show some of this, but we have outstanding fencing technology today. Now, this is one thing I'm going to talk about the rest of the time today and, and even this afternoon, compounding cascading effects. I want you to understand one thing. Nothing that we ever do in agriculture has a singular effect. Everything we do has compounding and cascading effects, either for the good or for the bad. It's never in between. It's always, one, it's always positive or negative, one way or the other. And as a matter of fact, even in life, everything that we do has compounding, cascading effects. Here's the key to effective adaptive grazing, or one of the keys. Don't turn adaptive grazing into a rigid, non-flexible grazing system. If you do, you're going to hit a plateau, you're going to stagnate, and then you're going to start digressing. It's called adaptive for a reason. You must constantly flex and change based on conditions, based on objectives, based on goals, based on plant and soil performance, and based on animal performance. So it's adaptive. Don't make it rigid. And we actually use, on our own operations, anywhere from 50,000 pounds per acre 
all the way up to a million pounds per acre, again, for very specific reasons at different times of the year. Now, but the average grazer across, especially the eastern portion of the U.S., what do you think is the average stock density per acre? Not even that, about 500 pounds. The average stock density is only about 500 pounds. So what we're trying to do with adaptive grazing is simulate nature. We're trying to create biomimicry and eco-mimicry. And so since we no longer have the broad, unfenced areas with no roads, no cities, no towns, all of that type of thing, we can't, we don't have the large wild roaming herds of ruminants anymore like the bison and the elk and so forth. Now we have to do it with our livestock. So we can nurture econ ecological memory through strategic use of our livestock. Now, just a little bit of data here. This slide shows how rapidly we can build new soil organic matter through adaptive grazing. This is starting in year one, and these are the different states this data is from. We have a lot more states that we have data from, but I just picked a handful to depict on this graph. But you can see that in each of these states, from the starting point in year one to year five, we were able to significantly improve soil organic matter in each of those operations through implementing adaptive grazing. The same thing occurred in improving our soil microbial population. Now, our soil microbial population is measured in nanograms per gram. And again, you can see that in most all, all of these operations, were 2,000 nanograms per gram of soil microbes or less, which, folks, is very, very low. That means you have a very poorly functioning soil microbial population. But we were able to build to 6,000 or greater in all of these, in each of these examples within a five-year period. Here's another thing that we stress strongly, keep your soil covered at all times. This was in the summertime where we have shaded soil. The soil was 87 degrees. Where it was exposed, it was 107. And here's why you want to keep it covered. At 70 degrees, 100% of your soil moisture is used for growth and regrowth of your plants and soil microbial support. But when the soil reaches 100 degrees, then 85% of your soil moisture is lost and only 15% is still available for plant growth and regrowth. At 115 degrees, which is very easy for soil to reach that, your microbes begin to break down, and at 140 degrees, you have pasteurized your microbes in your soil. Manure distribution is another reason why we should use adaptive grazing. It allows us to be able to much more effectively apply manure across the entirety of our fields on an effective basis. With continuous grazing, it takes 27 years to get one pile of manure every square yard, but we can do that in a single year by moving them one time a day. So diversity is the key. That's what we're looking for, looking to build. You know, when we have monocultures above the ground, we have monocultures of roots below the ground, but this is what we're after, and here's why. Because where do the majority of soil microbes live and function? Well, they live in the root zone. And if we have limited root zone, we're always going to have limitations on our soil microbial population. But also, 
when we're trying to build new soil organic matter, about two-thirds of our soil organic matter increase will come from the roots of those plants that exist in the ground. So I work by what I call the principle of three. Whenever we plant perennial mixes for any of our clients or design cocktail mixes for cover crops, we always make sure we incorporate the principle of three. And that means that I want grasses, legumes, and forbs incorporated into those. Grasses, legumes, and forbs. And preferably more than one of each of those. My preference is at least three of each of those. So if I'm doing a warm season or a cool season cover crop mix, I want at least three grasses, at least three forbs, at least three legumes incorporated into that mix. So this is what we're looking for, again, whether perennial or annuals, warm seasons or cool seasons. So why diversity and complexity? Because of those compounding cascading effects that I talked about earlier. Now one of the things that the work of Dr. Fred Provenza tells us is that different plants produce different secondary and tertiary chemical compounds. Now we all know about the primary compounds that plants produce, okay? Those are things like the crude protein, you know, the TDN, and all of that, the, you know, the mineral status and so forth. Those are the primary nutrient compounds that we're all familiar with. But very few of us are familiar with the fact that every plant produces a multitude of secondary and tertiary chemical compounds. Now, in terms of human pharmaceuticals, where were most of our pharmaceuticals derived? From plants, right? These secondary and tertiary chemical compounds isolated from plants. Well, folks, those same compounds have medicinal effects on our livestock. They're important. They're there for a reason. And when we have monocultures and near monocultures, then what's occurring is that we are severely limiting the number of secondary and tertiary chemical compounds that can be produced. So we're limiting the medicinal and even anti-parasitic impact that we can have on our livestock. Many of the secondary and tertiary chemical compounds produced by a lot of forbs out there have anti-worming properties. Okay, so they will deworm naturally our livestock. But when we have monocultures, we have eliminated that opportunity for that to happen. So diversity and complexity allows so many more good things to happen for us. It all, we also need diversity in our microbial species, and certain microbial species are only associated with certain plant types, plant species. So the more diversity and complexity in plants, the more diversity and complexity in our microbial population. Also, that results in greater diversity in the microorganisms of our soil. Earthworms, soil level insects, all of that. So it becomes exponential rather than linear in impact. This is Green Acres Research Farm located near Cincinnati, Ohio. I've been working with Chad Bentler and the guys at Green Acres. And they're looking at row crop, cover crop, livestock integration and rotations. 
they're now doing year-round, introducing year-round livestock rotations into the row cropping areas and rotating those around. But this is what we found. 55 days after planting, we had 8,500 pounds per acre available dry matter. No fertilizer or starter fertilizer was applied. And over a 120-day grazing period, the steers gained a little better than three pounds a day. For the second grazing, those paddocks have recovered to the extent that we had 4,500 pounds of dry matter available per acre. So an 18 species warm season cocktail mix was planted and in a 120 day grazing period, they gained eight tenths organic matter, eight tenths. Also, they added 20,000 gallons of water holding capacity per acre. This research was being done across a 100 acre research plot. And so that meant that over that 100 acres, they added two million gallons of increased water holding capacity. Soil nitrogen increased 58 pounds per acre. Soil mineral value increased $105 per acre. And the soil microbial activity increased 44% over just 120 days. And the earthworm population at the end of the 120 days was greater than 130,000 earthworms per acre. Penn State just recently completed a nine-year trial, and they compared a two-seed perennial mix in pastures to a five-seed. Now, I like a lot more complexity and diversity than this, but look at what happened just from going from a two-seed mix to a five-seed mix over a nine-year period. By doing that and changing nothing else and what they did, over the nine-year period, the five-seed mix averaged 31% more forage dry matter production. Now folks, it didn't cost them any more to plant the five seed than the two seed mix. No more. And yet for nine years, they averaged 31% more forage production just by having more complexity and diversity in that mix, right? Just simply by doing that one thing. And in terms of soil organic carbon down to 39 inches, they averaged annually sequestering 1.8 tons per hectare in the five seed mix versus a half a ton in the two seed. For more on the land stewardship project's work to help farmers build soil health and their bottom lines, see our website at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendell, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.